Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. We thank you for the praise on some of these individuals that look like their lives are changing toward you. And thank you for the revival that we can see starting. Lord, we ask you to guide and lead as we look at this chapter in this book of Second Peter today. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these be in you and abound, they make, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. I want to look at this because there's quite a bit here. Uh, starts out, according to his divine nature, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. How do we get the benefits of God that we see or how do we understand them? Through knowledge. And this is one of the things, when people accuse us of turning off our brains and, you know, and I've even heard different pastors say it's all about faith, and it is really all about faith in God, but faith is not blind, right? Faith isn't just a walk off the cliff. I'm going to walk off the Grand Canyon and hope that God catches me. It's not, that is not faith. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, right? Faith is very strong, and faith has to have its basis in facts and truth. And we've talked about this. All of us deal with faith all the time. When we sit in these folding chairs where we have the faith that the folding chair will hold us up. Why? Because they usually do. <laughs> you know, probably 99.9% .9 of the time they hold us up. Unless something's broken on the chair and if we look at it we would notice that it was broken. It will hold us up. All right? Evidence over time has proved that. Faith is that evidence. I walk. How can I trust God? Because he's always been true in the scriptures. He's always been true in the testimonies I hear. And he's always been true in my life. So the longer I walk with him, the more faith I develop in God and the more I trust him. Right? When we first start out, it's hard to have faith in God. We don't have personal experience with God. Yes, we believe the Bible. We'll look at the Bible and say, okay, I've got faith. Which is why we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our initial faith comes simply by, okay, God, yeah, you helped Noah, you helped Abraham, you helped Isaac, you helped Jacob, you helped uh, Joseph, you helped David, you helped Solomon, you helped Paul, you helped all these people. Okay, I'm going to put my faith in their testimony. And then if we really start growing, we start hearing about other people's testimonies, and we read biographies, and we start saying, okay, God, look at, look at what you've done for, for, for all these people. And then we start having enough experience with God and going, God, you've always been faithful to me. 
And now faith becomes easier because it's not me just believing somebody else's story or something, something from the Bible. It's, God, you have always done what's right for me. And it becomes easier and easier to walk by faith because it's like, even when God throws a challenge at us, it makes no sense or doesn't, all right, God, don't really understand this, but you've been good all, the, all these times. I'm going to walk. Knowledge. Knowledge of who he is. Knowledge of who, how much he loves me. You know, when we get saved, we, we kind of say, okay, God, I know you loved me enough to die for me, but where's this love actually you know, go to? Do you really love me? You know, okay, you love me enough to die for me. You give me this gift, but what happens when I mess up the 5,000th time? And it's like, oh, God can't love me now. Why do we say that? Because people wouldn't. You know, or maybe even our mom or dad didn't. You're always messing up. Well, Dad, I only flunked three tests. Well, you'll, you'll, never, you'll never amount to anything. So we get to this point where we start failing God's test, and we go on, well, nobody's ever loved me. He can't love me anymore. And yet he proves his love over and over and over again, and it's infinite love. And I love that he will never stop loving us. He will never stop lifting us up. He will never stop caring for us. And even more important, he never has a point where he doesn't have time for us. And I, that's kind of an amazing thing. He holds the entire universe together, and yet he has time for every single person that exists, has existed, or ever will exist. And he has plenty of time for everybody. Part of it is his omnipresence, but <laughs> he has time for every one of us. And that's just an amazing thought. And he's never going to lose his concentration He's never going to have a place where you're talking to him and go, one moment, let me go over here and talk to this other person. He's fully looking at us. And he says, he has given to us all things that, per that pertain to life and godliness. What, whatever we need for true life, not just being physically alive, but what we need for true life and godliness, he gives us. And this is something we've got to be able to understand. My life and my godliness does not depend on me. It depends on what God has given me. All right? And this is very important. Most Christians even think, well, God, I have got to work real hard to live a godly life. I have got to work real hard to, to deserve, deserve the life and the godliness you've given me. I can just picture God shaking his head and say, one day you'll grow. <laughs> one day you'll understand. My flesh needs to be crucified. My flesh doing good works is filthy rags. And God says, I don't want those. You know, and, and I picture this, you know, God says our righteousness is filthy rags. And one day at the white throne judgment, people are going to stand before God in their own righteousness. And they're going to be saying, let me in. Look at all my good things. And they'll finally see their righteousness for what it is. Rags. As they look down to themselves and see them dressed in filthy, dirty, stinky rags. And initially, they're probably going to think, well, this is my sin. This is not what I'm supposed to be dressed in. And God's going to say, no, that's your goodness. That is your goodness standing before me. And compared to his absolute righteousness. And they're not going to understand it. And this is why as we as Christians, we walk in and we start realizing doesn't matter when we really get there we understand it doesn't matter what I do it matters what God is doing with me and through me and that is where our rewards come in and then we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we've got rewards for him doing the work 
all things that come from him. And he provides all things for us to be godly. So our best, our best and only opportunity is surrender to him. Say, God, I just surrender you. Now I realize when I say that that is harder to do, uh, say than to do. All right? And believe me, I've been there many times, fighting God, fighting God, finally surrendering and going, man, that was so stupid. Why did I fight for so long? And yet I'll turn around and do it again, all over again, the next big challenge God puts in my, in my path. I'll fight, 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 and finally surrender. I'm getting better at surrendering than I used to be, and I'm getting faster at it. But we all need to get to the place where we surrender because the one thing I can tell everybody is when you finally surrender, you'll be kicking yourself for taking so long to surrender. And when you go, it was so easy and it was so beneficial, why did I take so long? Our flesh is to be crucified, not, not disciplined. Our life is given to him and we are dead to our sin and we are in, risen in Christ and he gives us the strength and the power to do righteous living. And sometimes it seems like it's us doing it because, because he's crucified the flesh, but it really is him. And it all comes down to he gives us all things that pertain to life and godly living. A gift from him. Nothing that I can do. Verse 4 says, Whereby we are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises. I love this. Exceedingly, you know, great. And I think about this exceeding, you know, something described as exceedingly is, is very large. All right. Uh, people will see the Grand Canyon and they'll talk about how exceedingly wonderful it is and how beautiful it is. They'll look up in the stars and talk about the magnificence of the, of the heavens, especially if you're away from the city and can actually see all the stars. Uh, but, you know, he gives us exceedingly great and precious promises. You know, and this is wonderful. You know, this whole idea of how wonderful God is with the gifts that he gives us. And note that these are gifts. He gives us. They're not sold to us. They're not bought by us. They're not earned by us. He gives a gift. And, you know, one of the things we really have to understand is God is a good father who wants to give gifts to his children. And we always try to sit there and figure out, okay, God, how can I earn this gift? How can I, how can I get you to deserve to give me this gift? And God says, just ask. Just desire it. You know, we've got to understand God wants to give us the desires of our heart. As long as we use them for him, he wants to give us the desires of our heart. Uh, you know, we know that he gives us our needs. And our needs are much lower than, you know, what we think, especially as Americans. You know, we oftentimes think we have greater needs than what God's, God knows we need. But by the same token, he also wants to give us desires. He's not up there saying, well, how little can I give, how little can I give my children? I want to keep them just a little satisfied. Just, just a little bit. You know, how great is God? What blessings does he give us? When I think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were brought in to be servants of King Nebuchadnezzar, advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. And they studied hard. They did a good job. They're probably going, okay, as long as we keep our heads, you know, 
will be low-ranking, low-ranking officials with nothing, you know, with no expectation. You know, in, the, in their heart of hearts, they probably wanted to be much more. Let's be able to influence this king. Let's be able to influence this king and bring God into his life. And God raises them up and makes Daniel number, number two in the kingdom. And we find out that Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer in God. And is actually talked to by God saying, your pride is going to make you be judged. And ends up being judged and makes a great commitment back to God again. What, and we know that has to be the influence of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego honoring God. How many people do we influence? We really never know. We really never know. We have people that we're burdened for that are family and friends and you know, that aren't Christians. We never know what they're seeing when they look at our lives. And we're thinking, well, I never get, this person never gets to see God. I don't, we never talk about God. But if you're living a Christian life and, and going to church and spending time and your, your mood changes and you're generally happy and things are going well and you're giving God praise for your benefits, you know, benefits, you know, they'll eventually notice this person's changed. This person's changed. You know, they talk about God every once in a while. Maybe it's this God thing, because that seems to be the only thing that's changed in their life. And the next thing you know, they become a Christian. Because you had an impact on their life that you never even were of. You never, maybe you never even got to witness to them directly. They just saw the change in your life. My dad's testimony was that I was one of the changed people that he noticed. And I don't remember witnessing to my dad beyond the first day when he asked me what, you know, what I did and, you know, did I know what it meant to be a Christian and he didn't know the answers that he was looking for and I didn't really know how to answer everything but I told him what I did and, and that, I, that, I was, that it was real and, you know, and he stored that away. <laughs> and he saw the changes in my life. And he had a friend at work that was pressing him about Jesus and testifying. He finally got saved. So we never know what is the impact of our life on people? We'll never know completely what that is. And it's all God doing the work. And that's the wonderful thing. He gives it to us. And then this gives us all things through the knowledge of him that has called us into glory and virtue. So glory, bright, bright shining is what literally means. Glory is to make heavy with, with, uh, and shiny and, and lumen and virtue. This whole idea of virtue, moral excellency, modesty, purity. One of the things that make Christians stand out is our moral excellency and, and purity when we're walking with God. And it's one of the things that is glaringly out of place when we fail. Because it is so different than what we're, what we're trying to tell people we are and what God expects. And this is why as we start walking with God, we start realizing I'm not as pure as I need to be. I may not be as modest as I need to be. You know, and it may not even be in, in appearance. It could be in, in my speech. Am I pure and modest in my speech? Or do I say things that are suggestive? Do I use language that is inappropriate for somebody who's supposed to be virtuous? You know, and these could be any aspect of our life. You know, how am I? You know, am I committed to not speak gossip? Am I committed to not tear people down? Am I committed to build people up? and encourage people. It all comes down into our virtue and our purity and our morality. And this is something that comes from God. 
And what we'll find is when, we're, when God is working on us, we'll start saying something and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be saying this. I shouldn't be participating in this. I shouldn't be watching this. You know, and that's really hard sometimes in the privacy of our home. What are we watching on TV? What, what movies? What shows? What, you know, what activities? What am I reading? What am I filling my mind with when nobody else knows? That's when purity and virtue truly come into place. Now, it might be somewhat easy, if you want to, to make people think that you are these ways. The real question is, what happens when I'm by myself? Am I being virtual, virtuous? Am I being moral when nobody else knows? And that's where the knowledge of God comes into. The more I know what God wants, the more he's going to convict. And the more he convicts, the more I have to surrender to him and say, okay, God, let's get rid of it. And sometimes we fight him tooth and nail before we get rid of some things. Sometimes we do real good and go, God, okay, yep, no problem, I'll get rid of that. And then we have the trials of trying to get rid of it. You know, people who have decided I'm not going to go to R-rated movies and all of a sudden the next thing you know is their favorite actor doing their favorite, doing a really good story it seems like, and it's an R-rated movie. You know, and I'm not saying you have to give up R-rated movies, but I'm just saying that's, that's the way it is. I had a friend who decided God convicted him of not using God's name in vain and not participating with anything that used God's name in vain. Went through his movies and threw away about 500 movies. <laughs> he, he was commenting, he goes, I only have about 10 movies now to watch. Uh, I'm going, oh, well, why was that? He goes, because any one of them that used God's name in vain, I threw away. You know, and I'm going, well, that's good. You didn't, you didn't give them away. He goes, no, I was convicted not to give them away because they're bad for me, they're bad for others. <laughs> And I go, I like that because that's, that's what I did when I was, had convictions. I threw, if it's not good for me, it's not good for anybody else, throw it away. Which means sometimes I've thrown away a lot of very valuable things. Because not, you know, not just giving away or emptying a house, but if it wasn't good and God was convicting me to get rid of it for conviction purposes, I would throw it away. Uh, but, you know, how are we morally in our day-to-day -day life? People notice especially our children and our friends and our family, they will notice. Are we truly trying to be moral? Have we changed? Do we have joy in our life? That's a big thing. Having joy is so wonderful. And, you know, being able to, we get the peace that passes understanding, and that really drives the world crazy. Whenever, when all hell is breaking loose in your life and you stay fairly comfortable and at peace, people look at it saying, I don't understand. I don't understand at all. Yesterday was one of the most miserable days at work that I had. I was told a bunch of things were done and nothing was done. And I got to work an hour early and found out that half of what I needed to do in one hour, you know, in an hour was not done. The prep work wasn't done. So I had to rush around getting that and then this, on the second half of the day, none of the prep work was done. <laughs> And I never caught up on that one because it takes way too long to get that prep work done. And I'm sitting there stressing because I'm trying to get everything done and, you know, and I failed that test. Yesterday, I failed the test at, at work. I got really stressed and irritated and, and, and bummed out all day long. You know, I should have just said, okay, God, give me the strength to do whatever I can get done and whatever doesn't get done isn't going to be done but I'm too much of a perfectionist. I don't like, you know, it is really a trial for me when things go wrong 
uh, that even if I have no control over it, I still don't like things to go wrong. Sometimes if I had not been told that it was done and it was my fault, I could have accepted it a whole lot better than assuming that, that what I was told, that every, because I was told everything was done. So I went in with the wrong expectation and it just really threw me for a loop. But it, I mean, I still was wrong. Even from, from nature and from human, human logic, I had every right to be irritated, every right to be upset. Uh, from God's perspective, I, I messed up the test big time. I lost my peace, I lost my joy for an entire eight hour day. Actually, it turned out to be a 10 hour day. But, <laughs> but you know, we need to be careful because we can get easily knocked out, knocked off our course. And it's, I mean, what I did was not earth shatteringly wrong or anything, but I know better. I got to the end of the day and going, what a dummy. I, I wasted this whole day <laughs> being irritated by all of this. Nothing I could have done about it. And I had had a bad day. And I went to this store and I was already in a bad mood. And I went to one of the stores that I hate going to and had the normal bad, bad, bad service at that store. You know, had to wait 30 minutes to pick up the product that was supposed to be ready for me because nobody would come in to the pickup station. Uh, then I went to another store that they have just remodeled and was getting irritated there because I couldn't find anything that I wanted to find. And in that case, it wasn't their problem. It wasn't their problem. I knew that they were remodeling and I knew everything had moved, but I was already in a bad mood. So I took my bad mood and applied it to <laughs> everything else that happened. You know, finally got it back in, back in place before the end of the night, but it was, but it's so easy to fall away and have everything impacted. Yeah, well, letting go of it is much better. <laughs> much better, and I finally let go before, before I got home. <laughs> before I got home, I, I finally got, to, got it all taken care of. All right, verse 4, whereby we are given this exceeding great and precious promise that by, these, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The great and precious promises allow us to be partakers of the divine nature. Do we really realize we have Jesus Christ living in us? We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We even have the Father living in us because we are told in another scripture that the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells with us. You know, it's an amazing thing. It dwells in Jesus. He dwells in us. We have all of God and his nature available to us if we just let our flesh be crucified. That makes living the Christian life so simple when I surrender my flesh and just let it be crucified. The problem is I and you and everybody else tends to not want to surrender the flesh to be crucified because it hurts. Crucifixion of our flesh hurts. And God is saying, I'm here. You know, the good news is, is when I totally let go of it, it doesn't hurt as much because I've got, I'm, I'm, wrapped, my, I'm wrapped up with God, not the flesh. And I don't notice the flesh being crucified, and I get to the end of it and going, what, what happened to that? What happened to that desire? What happened to that attitude? You know, it, it's, it's gone. And I'm now putting all my trust and my faith in God. Being a partaker of that divine nature 
and have escaped corruption that is in the world through lust. Most of our problems come from the lust of the world. Not the lust of the, after the flesh or after a person necessarily, but a lust. Whether it's power, control. You know, this, the hardest thing is we have no control. My problem yesterday was I felt that I'm in control of most of my days and God was pointing out to me that I don't have control of a lot of my days. And we don't like to be in a place where we don't have control and putting all of our control in God. It's hard. And this is what it comes down to. What is the lust that we have? The lust of the flesh, the lust of uh, the, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes are what we have problems with. You know, the, what we see can make us lust real, real bad, whether it's a person or things or power, and just the desires that we have, the lust after being in, being in charge, being in control, uh, whatever, whatever other thing we have that we are lusting after. We just desire it so much, and, and the lust is always what's in it for me. What's in it for me is what lust boils down to. If I had whatever, I'd be happy. Well, the problem is it's not going to make us happy. It's not going to fulfill us. We need God, and we need to be following after him always. Because anything else is never going to make me happy. And this is the problem that we have in our world today. We live in a me generation. Whatever is best for me. And I am right and everybody else is wrong. And it's being told to people that that's the way they're supposed to be. And, you know, you start telling them that God is right and we're wrong and they really get bristly about it. Because that's not what they're being told. That's not what they're being told in school. That's not what they're being told by the television. That's not what's going on in all of their life. They're being told, I'm important. If I am, I am the king, I am the prince or the princess of this world, and if I'm not happy, nobody's going to be happy because everybody is supposed to be serving me. It's not the way the world works. And we see it over and over again. Uh, when we drive, we see it, that nobody will let you merge in hardly at all. And, you, know, it's, you know, I need this 10 feet of space you know, faster because I will get there point. 0.12 seconds faster by not letting you in, not letting you in this spot. You know, uh, you know, I'm going to run this red light because I'm the only one that's important, and I have to get where I'm going more important than you. You know, people will fight. You know, it's amazing that Black Friday, how many how many reports you get of people fighting viciously to get that deal. You know, get that deal because they're important. You know, I've got to save my money with this deal that I must have or I'm going to die if I don't get this deal. You know, and it's like, calm down, people. Calm down. We all know people who are in that position that I'm the most important thing since sliced bread, and if you don't tell me what I want to hear and, and treat me the way I want to be treated, I'm going to make sure your life is miserable. And it will come out to, and, I, and I've watched these battles, and I've maybe even participated in a, you know, who is smarter? Who has done more things as a battle back and forth? You know, it may not be a vicious battle, but, you know, well, I had this job. Well, you know, I had a job like that, and I did this. Well, you know, I had, I had this, and this is what I did. Well, you know, I did this, and this is what I did. You know, and I went to school to learn this, and, well, I went to school, and I, you know, and it just, what is the big deal about it? You know, can we just let somebody think that they're more important for a while? 
and just drop it? You know, we're to serve one another. What is true leadership is to serve. Jesus was a servant to people, a servant to the disciples, so much of a servant that he washed their feet before the last Passover. Now, we don't think of that as a really big deal, you know, because we don't, work, we don't walk around with sandals and get our feet dirty. And, but in that culture, the servant who watched, washed the feet of the, of the people when they came into the, into the house was your most inept servant. They were the servant that you didn't let handle the dishes, didn't let handle a broom because they might break everything as they, as they moved everything. You, know, the, you gave that job of washing the people's feet to an inept servant because all they might break is the pitcher of water uh, because you weren't really going to break the feet of the people you were washing their feet with. You poured water over it, rubbed a towel on it, and they figured even the most inept servant could do that. Jesus did the job of the most inept servant, and from the disciples' perspective, it should have been one of them. Okay, this is the master. The master's not going to do the job of the most inept servant. You know, they they probably didn't know exactly which one of them should be chosen. They probably had their suspicions, but Jesus shouldn't have been the one washing their feet. That was not something that got done. Are we able to be that humble? Now, does that mean we let people make absolutely stupid statements and get away with it? Not necessarily. But do we have to one-up everybody? You know, do we have to make it look like, well, you know, I've just got to show you how smart I am and what I know how to do. There's a humility involved in it because the cream always does rise for the top. I mean, if you're the smartest, you're the best, your attitude in your life will show it. You know, and you never have to be going, look at me, pay attention to me, I'm, I, you know, I'm the one. <laughs> and the hard thing is when, you, when you're interviewing for a job, that's exactly what you have to do. And it's, it's tough for people who are usually trying to be humble to interview and, and talk about how, why, they're the best, why they're the best for that position. But you know, here it's saying the world has all this lust and these desires. Then we get to this long list of how do we get to this. And I want to, we want to take a look at this. I want to look at each piece to avoid the lust and get there. Verse 5. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So this idea of giving literally means supply. And giving is not the best word. It is supply. So we supply to our faith diligence. Faith is conviction. The conviction of the truth of something. That's where we start at. That's the most basic place we start at. For by faith are you saved through faith, of, through grace, not, a, not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we start with faith. God, I'm just going to believe that you're true. You know, I don't have any proof on it. I don't know. And I don't really, I'm not convicted of it yet. And so our faith comes by hearing. We get into God's word. He starts building our faith. We start getting a conviction that he's true. We start getting enough evidence that he's true. And then we add to our faith diligence. And this whole idea of diligence is hard work, basically. God, I'm just going to believe it. I'm going to act on what you say is true. Uh, one of my greatest stories on that would, that I love to give is, is Mueller praying for breakfast that is not there. Right? And he's giving, he's actually saying grace 
for the breakfast that is not at the table to give to the children. And, he's, and his, his prayer was something along the way, God, thank you for the food that we are about to eat, knowing that there's nothing in the kitchen. And while he's praying, the knock on the door comes with the, bread, the baker down the, down the street who says, God just told me to, to make this bread because the children needed bread this morning. So all of a sudden, the kids had breakfast of bread. Not the greatest bre breakfast, but a, but a breakfast. And while he's delivering the bread, the, the milkman comes and says, hey, my wagon just broke down. I've got to get it towed to the, towed to the shop. I've, you know, I've got to get rid of this milk. And I thought maybe the kids would, could use it rather than just dumping it into the street. Now they got bread and milk. Most nutritious breakfast in the world? No, but they had a breakfast. They had food in their stomach, and actually, for some of the world, that is breakfast. You know, bread and, bread and water or bread and milk is breakfast in a lot of the world. In Asia, it's rice and, rice and milk. All right? So we add this idea of just going out with diligence, and he says, add virtue. And we go back to virtue, modesty, purity, moral excellence. So we start out with faith. And God slowly starts getting us to a place where we are being virtuous and showing some purity. And that may take some time. It may take a long time. We do it in our apparel. We do it in our thoughts. We do it in our actions. And we, we start out and we just start doing it. Once we get to our virtue, he says, and to virtue, add knowledge. Knowledge, a more deeper and perfect understanding. This is something that a lot of Christians stop at virtue. You know, I, you know, they won't, a lot of them won't even really consider what God says and get into his word. And there's lots of churches out there that don't get into God's word. And they're afraid to speak God's word in some churches because they're afraid that people aren't going to like what they hear and leave. And, you know, I've told people, I can get a lot of people in this church. All I got to do is stop teaching God's word. You know, hey, everything's okay. I don't know what I'd be teaching. <laughs> I have no idea what I'd be teaching if I wasn't teaching his word. Prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Everybody, you know, <laughs> you know everybody, everybody be good. God wants to bless you. <laughs> well, he does want to bless us, but, <laughs> but not like that. Um, so we add knowledge. And this whole idea of a perfect enlarged understanding. The good news for us on that statement is we will never be fully knowledgeable. I've only been studying God's word for 48 years and it's still fresh and new every day with new stuff to learn and understand. Maybe 20 or 30,000 years from now I might understand more. Matter of fact, I know I'll understand more. I'll never understand all of it. That's how powerful his word is. And that is good. But I can get a deeper and more full understanding. In verse 6, I add to my knowledge temperance. Now, temperance is a word that we don't use very often in this day and age, but it simply means self-control of passion and desires. I get to learn to control my desires. Doesn't, note that I, temperance doesn't mean I lose those desires or I lose those passions. I learn to control them. Usually when we hear the word temperance, we're, we hear it in relationship to alcohol and drugs. Learn to control those, but it really means Learn to control any desire and passion, especially ones that are bad. All right? uh, 
And that can be for lust and sex and theft and alcohol and drugs and all kinds of things. But I learned to control my passions. And this is where we really get down to starting to get tested. This is where God tests us a lot is in temperance. He'll put the things in our path and say, are you in control yet of this passion? Are you going to let me crucify your desire for that passion so that I can control your desire for that passion? And that's where the true victory is. I start with me doing it. I start with the whip and chain. Let me put, you know, whip and chair. Let me put my flesh under, under control. And God shows me that I can't do that. And he keeps showing me that I can't do that. And he goes, are you ready now for me to crucify it so that you're not even going to be tempted by it? And eventually we will go, okay, God, I am sick and tired of failing. I need your help. I surrender to you. And when we do that, it's not temperance anymore. It's him rewarding us with victory because it's dead. Not that it can't come back if we're not careful, if we're not watching, but he says, I've killed this one now. Let's move, let's move to the next thing we need to learn temperance on. And we'll spend our life on this. Then do we add to temperance, patience. Steadfast encouragement. Patience. And sometimes patience is just learning to be able to shake our head when we're dealing with somebody that totally bugs us or a situation that bugs us. My patience was tried yesterday and I, pa I failed the patience test yesterday. Uh, you know, usually I do, too, do pretty good with patience, but yesterday was one of those days I failed that test miserably. You know, but patience. You know, God will put us in a place that will try patience as well. And it starts by going, okay, we've gotten past this. Now we're going to put you, some, put you near somebody. You've got temperance. Let's put you around somebody who doesn't have the temperance and see if you can be patient with them. And sometimes that's hard. Most of the time, it's very hard to be patient with somebody that has got a problem that we're dealing with. And God loves to do that. Loves to put us close to somebody who's having problems that we're having to deal with because it makes us really have to suffer with the idea of judging them. When we've gotten over something, you know, some of the worst people to be that on other people are people that have given up smoking or drinking, especially smoking. They've given up their smoking and they just get irritated with everybody who hasn't given up smoking. And it's kind of easy. I mean, smokers stink. They have bad breath. They, they're wasting their money. They're always standing downwind of the people who don't want to smoke. And I don't think they do it on purpose. It just happens to be that way. And it can be very irritating. As, an, as a person who's never smoked, it just irritates me a little bit. But I know that sometimes smokers all of a sudden get very, or ex-smokers get very, very irritated. Uh, and they can be the worst about going after somebody who hasn't given up smoking. Uh, ex-drinkers and ex-drug uh, users can be the same way at times. You know, and we need to be careful. That patience needs to be there for people that aren't at the same plus we are. Because as I say, the other thing is, we may have a problem that they don't have. And they're probably judging us for our problem that we haven't gotten victory over. So we want to be careful with this. Our job is not to judge others. Our job is to love them and encourage them and appreciate what they have changed. It's one of the things I love watching people in this church. You know, everybody's not perfect like me, but you know, they're, they're people are growing. You know, and of course, I already just said I'm not perfect. I failed yesterday in a big way. So, I mean, but we always have to understand that 
people are not perfect. And we're not perfect. And we're all growing in some different way. God has convicted me of some sins that others never probably will be dealt with. Where they're being dealt with things that I never even had to deal with in the first place. And they may even be dealing with something that God may have me dealing with, you know, 10 years from now. We never know where we're at in the training process because God has a personalized training plan. His training plan isn't one size fits all because he knows every human being is totally different. And the good news is he knows what's coming up. When I was training employees, I usually would train them, okay, this is what I'm going to have them do tomorrow. So I would train them on what I was going to have them do tomorrow or the next day. And it wasn't always the same thing for every trainee. You know, if I hired three people, they weren't all going to work at the same station the next day. So they each would be trained for where they were going to be working, get to know it, and then learn something different. So my, personal, my plans were personalized. God does the same thing with each one of us. He goes, well, you know, next month you're going to have a problem with, with this person in your life. Let's try to help you get ready for that person. And he gets us ready for that person or that thing or that situation. Well, I want you to learn to be content with what you have and learn your contentment is in me because he knows that next month we're going to lose our job. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know why he's doing it. And then hopefully we've learned our lesson when we, and we don't get too freaked out when we lose our job. Now, I don't know what it is he's preparing each one of us for, but I'm just you know, throwing out examples. He gets us ready for what he knows is coming so that we can have true patience. And then to our patience, he says, we're going to add godliness. True godliness. Our changes are real. We're living for God through the power of God and being able to build people up, edify them, be patient with them. We have our life getting better. We're never going to be perfect, but it's getting better. And people start looking at us and saying, yeah, that person kind of looks like a Christian. They kind of act like a Christian. Oh, yeah, I see them lose their cool once in a while. But, you know, mostly they get by pretty good. They, they respond correctly. There's a real godliness about them. And then to godliness, we add brotherly love. That love and affection one for another. That's the second to last thing that God is trying to build into us. Just loving people as brothers and sisters. Why, why is that one so much lesser? Because it really is a love that's based on, I get something out of it. Okay, I'm going to like you. You're, you're nice to me, so I can easily li like you. All right? And that's usually the way friendships are. You know, we get something from it. Whether it's just, they like me, they, they, they're, they're not repulsed by me, they don't mind being in my presence, whatever it might be. You know, or there's a deep affection where we really like each other and we're coming closer to agape. And the last one is add to brotherly kindness, charity, or agape love. Agape love is unconditional love, or as I like to say, objective love. I prefer the term objective love. I choose to love somebody. God's love to us is objective. He chooses to love us. doesn't matter what we do or don't do. He loves us. And that's good news. We don't want it any other way. I would not want God's love to be subjective. All right, well, that's the 99th time that you've uh, not done what I've said, and I don't like you anymore. I don't love you anymore. That's the way our love is. And we probably wouldn't go to 99 times. 
You haven't, you haven't done anything for me this week. You know, I don't love you anymore. God's love is objective love. He says, I love you. The ultimate goal of our Christian walk is to live in objective love. I love God for no other reason than I choose to love him. I love the children of God for no other reason than I choose to love them. If I choose to love them and I truly live with that kind of love, it will change the way I interact with people. I've chosen to love you and it doesn't matter to me what you do. Because what ends up happening, if you don't have this kind of love and somebody does something, says something, acts some way that you don't like, you rebound back into some kind of fleshly response. I didn't get what I expected and, and now I'm all the way back at ground zero again. Because you just made me mad and I no longer have patience, I don't have a virtue, I don't, and I'm not being modest and pure, I'm back all the way back to the lust of the world. And I'm not even, I bypassed everything. I just, you know, or at least I slide down the list. All right, I'm going to be temperate of you. I'm going to at least put up with you. You know, you made me mad, but I'm, in my flesh I'm mad, but I'm not going to let you see it because I'm just going to be temper, you know, temperate. I'm going to not be angry with you. Even though I'm seething inside, you're not going to see it. And true agape love, we might feel sad for them. You're missing so much. There's many people that I feel sad when I, when I look at their life and where they're going and going, God, you know, let's, let's you and I talk, God. <laughs> they're making a lot of bad decisions, God. How can, we, how can we reach them? How can we move them in the right direction? I still love them. I still care about them. Am I that way with everybody? No. Nope. <laughs> there's certain people I'm that way with. There's certain people I'm not that way with. I'm getting better. You know, it was really hard that I never liked people and God had to teach me to love people in the first place. You know, and so I'm getting there. But I do tend to come to this idea of God. Where, what can I do to help them? Help me, God, be able to minister. And half the time I have no idea what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it, but my prayer is, God, show me. Show me how to show your love to these people. And a lot of times it's just giving out grace, giving out comfort, teaching God's word, <laughs> but just giving encouragement to say, you know, God loves you. Let's, you know, trust in him. That may not be much, but it may be just what they need to know how to get out of it. The most important thing we can tell most people is God loves you. They may or may not believe it, especially when they're in the middle of a trial. And it's hard. You know, I think about in the cross and the switchblade that Nikki Cruz was told by David Wilkerson, God loves you. And it made Nikki so angry, he said, I'm going to cut you into 100 pieces. And David Wilkerson said, and every piece will say, God loves you. <laughs> you know, because that really, when somebody is walking as far away from God and they don't think God wants anything to do with them, it, they take comfort in that. Okay, I'm a sinner and I'm so bad that not even God wants anything to do with me. And then when you walk into their life and say, God loves you, and nope, 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 no way. I am just too bad. You know, if, if I was to come anywhere near God, lightning bolts from heaven would come striking me dead because I, he doesn't love me, he doesn't want me. And yet that word resonates in their heart and brings conviction. 
God loves you. Just turn to him. You know, and it might even be as simple as, you know, then if they really start listening, you can just give them the John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How much does God love you? He gave himself to die. May not, may not be a lot. They might not even get saved on it, but, you know, to resonate with them, God loves you is a very powerful statement to be able to make. And, you know, we need to be able to understand that. Salvation is a gift. All of this is a gift. It starts with me giving up myself, getting to know God, getting to know that he is somebody I can depend on. And the more I get to know him, the more I get to learn about who he is, and the more I get to work on being able to love. Because if God's in control and all things work together for good, doesn't matter how I'm treated. Really doesn't. Doesn't matter how I am treated because I'm not what's important. God is important. And God isn't even up there saying, I demand you to treat me the way I, with the respect that I deserve. You know, you are going to bow. You are going to come to Christ. You are going to get saved because look at the price I paid. He's just up there loving us. You know, giving us gifts. Giving us position. Why do the lost get so many benefits, it seems, so, many, so often? Because God loves them. And he's given them enough rope to hang themselves with and basically saying, here's all the gifts I gave you. Here's all the opportunities I gave you to come to me so that when they stand before him at the white throne judgment, they will be without excuse. They will have heard the gospel. They will know that they deserve, deserve punishment. They will know that they are bad. They know that they needed God and rejected him. And when they stand before him, they're going to know that they're getting what they deserve because God's going to show it to them. They're going to be clothed in their own, their own right, righteous, stinking rags, saying, God, look at me. I deserve to, uh, oh, you know, uh, God, you left my sins on me. You know, I thought these were gone. He goes, no, those are, those are your good things you did. Your sins are gone. Your sins are buried. These are, these are the good things you did that you're dressed in. And they're going to realize that they are lost without any hope. All because they would not accept God and turn over. We need to be more like God in more cases. That does not mean that we excuse all bad things. It doesn't mean that we say that what you're doing, you know, that we don't tell them that what they're doing is wrong. We do it in love. We do it in care. We tell them that the, those are sins. We don't judge them for it. We just clearly say, this is a sin. And we'll be accused, even if we just tell people this is a sin, we'll be accused of judging them. Don't get me wrong. We'll be accused of judging. But just telling something, buddy, that this is sin, this is wrong, isn't, isn't judging. You know, I know darn well that when I go five miles over the speed limit, I am breaking the law and I am sinning. doesn't stop me from going five miles over the speed limit. But I know that it's wrong. And I know that if a police officer decides to pull me over, I deserve the ticket I got. You know, I was in the wrong. Now, I know that normally they won't, but if they did, I can't. Well, you know, officer, I was only going five miles over speed limit. You guys have never stopped me in the past for doing this. Doesn't matter. It's wrong. I know it's wrong. If I get pulled over, I get pulled over. I told my kids when they were driving because they knew I went five miles over the speed limit. I go, as long as you're no more than five miles over the speed limit, I'm not going to have a problem with you if you get pulled over for speeding. Now, if you were being stupid while you were zigzagging in and out at that, you know, because I couldn't tell them to, because I had the same attitude. If I get pulled over for five miles over the speed limit, 
I'm going to take the ticket. It's my, my problem. So if I was that example to my kids, then I wasn't going to criticize them if they got pulled over. But you know, we show grace. We show mercy. Because we've all got problems in our life that are, that are a problem. You know, and we need to be really cognizant of, I'm not perfect. I've got lots of problems in my life. So how can I judge these people who don't have, that aren't at the same place I am, they're just not, you know, growing. Now, my problem is I look at people who've been walking with God 60, 70 years and go, why aren't you spiritual? And I've got to be careful of that. Because just because they haven't grown the way I've grown just still doesn't mean, and been walking with God longer, doesn't mean that I can judge them. You know, they may be failures. That's between them and God. <laughs> Or they may have had a lot more stuff to get out of their life than I did. Or they might just be slower at learning than me. Because I'm sure there's people who are, who are looking at me and saying, well, what took you 48 years to learn all that stuff? I did it in 10. Or I did it in 5. You know? And, you know, one of the things I've always wondered in my life is why do some people get saved and miraculously change so drastically overnight? I had one big thing that God took out of my life. I've seen people who drastically change in their life. But the other thing I have noticed about them, mostly, is they are awfully self-righteous and intolerant of other people that had to learn and fight for those victories. Because they just keep looking, well, God changed me overnight. What's wrong with you? Well, I guess God just needed a little longer for me. Maybe I'm a little more stubborn. I don't know. And I've always wondered it. But, you know, I've also noticed that those who grow slowly are much more tolerant in most cases with people who are not where they where they probably should be than those who get changed overnight because they just look at it and say, well, I just trusted God well enough to do this. Look how, look, look how good I am. You know? it's, you know, and they're not purposely doing it, but they do have a sense of intolerance. And we need to be very careful with that. We gain all of this. It is a long, and the whole purpose of this statement, it is a long process to grow with God. And each area of our life will be at a different place of this list at, at any one time. We may be very agape loving of somebody who has a certain problem and not tolerant at all of another problem. And in some other place, we're not even beginning to think it's a problem. We're just not even dealing with them at all because we're not even wanting to be around them. Everything that we're going through may be in a different stage on this, on this chart as we're going through it. Because we're growing and God is personalizing our growth. And if we, all, if we thought we're all at, at agape love, God will show us someplace where we're not. Because he's not going to let us think we're perfect. He'll show us something else. Well, all right, we're going to go back to the very beginning. You need to have faith that I can take this away from you. <laughs> and start us all from the beginning on that topic. And then in verse 8 he says, for if these things be in you and abound, and that's the important part, and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If more Christians had these things abounding in their life, the fruit of their life will show that God's in control. They will see salvations around them because people will be looking at their life and saying, you are different. You, huh? Abound literally means, literally in the Greek means superabound, exceedingly abounding, be very fruitful in your life. Abundant. Abundant. All these things 
would be overly abundant. And you know, and it is true because many of us know people that are pretty abundant in these things. They tend to love people. They tend to honor God. They tend to be obedient to God. They tend to be joyful. We know a lot of other Christians that, you know, we hear them talk about being joyful. We talk about them, you know, loving people. And then you watch their life and you're going, uh, not quite where I think you, you know, you're not, you're, your actions aren't, are speaking a lot louder than your words. And then we know people who, for the most part, these are very true statements in their life. And you go, I kind of want to be like that person. You know, that person is a real Christian most of the time. You know, and they're the first ones, and those, those type of people are the first ones to tell you, <laughs> I'm sorry, I messed up, I shouldn't have, you know, I'm just human, I know I'm human, I try not to be, I try to live like God wants me to, but you know, I do mess up. A lot of times the most prideful people will tell you they're doing all of this stuff and they live like the devil. You know, and those are the ones that Jesus had the problem. Jesus had the problem with the scribes and Pharisees, the ones that said, look at us, we're perfect. And Jesus said, you guys aren't even close to being perfect. You know, you guys are miserable, terrible, open sepulchers and serpents and vile. Because he saw their righteousness as filthy rags that they didn't see. And when we're really, truly walking with God, we see, I am just clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am who I am through Christ, not through anything that I, that I have done. And when we can get there, we can have great love and honor for, for God. And then the last verse I want to cover is, but he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. If we are not growing in that list of things that need to be done, we are really walking in blindness. God, I can do all this on my own. And I'm forgetting what God has done for me. He purged me. He's the one that, you know, is crucifying my flesh. He's the one that's making me better. And Peter is saying, without faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love, we're blind. Thinking that I can do it all on my own. Thinking that it's all me. And when we start getting into that whole thing, it's me, we're in trouble. <laughs> all right? And we always end up with that whole comment. When we come back to the me part of it, we're looking at the flesh. Uh, we need to be careful. If we hear ourselves speaking I and me and look what I have done, look what I have accomplished, look at me, we're walking in the flesh. We're not walking with God. And this is what this all, abounds, all comes down to. When we're walking there, we're forgetting what God has done for us. Now, if you're lost and never ha you never were purged anyway, you have nothing to forget because you were never there. But Paul, uh, Peter is talking to Christians. Because if you're forgetting all of this stuff, you're lacking all of this stuff, you're blind and forgetting where you were and who did the work. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you as we look at your word and, and ask you to bless and keep us. Lord, teach us to add these things to our lives. Help us to remember these things for us and that you are the one that accomplishes all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.